You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Um, tagging on to what Ty was talking about with small groups a little bit. We have a theme this next year for our small groups. We're going to be talking about character. Um, and considering Christian character and what God says, um, how we're supposed to interact with not only each other, but with the whole world. And considering the passages we've gone through, we're talking about the, some of the most difficult parts of life. When life is just full of gray situations where we have to make choices the best we can using God's word, trying to apply it to our lives, and we just, it's not clear. And as we walk through life and as we try to apply it to these difficult situations and suddenly things don't go our way and we try to do the best we could, we tried to do everything in alignment, there weren't any issues that we did, there wasn't any sins we committed, and life still didn't go our way. We still felt punished for our actions, and life just came across as being very, very unfair. I was considering times in our life when we've experienced this, and uh, you don't even have to reach back too far in history. Just go right back to 2008 when uh, the entire economy took a downturn because of uh, a few people's poor decision-making, and it affected the entire nation's economy. And people were out of jobs that were just going along their lives, out of homes, It just isn't fair. But how do we respond in those situations? And so God calls us to have a a certain perspective. Calls us to have his perspective. And Ty talked about this a couple weeks ago. And out of that, there's two major things that come from this. One of them we talked about last week is that God is going to do things that we do not understand in ways that we would not do. And he is not going to often consult us on how to go about these things. He's not asking our opinions. And that's hard. And it goes back to, well, that feels unfair. And I feel like I made, did the best I could. But God's going God's to work in ways we don't get. He's going to do things for reasons we're not going to understand. And we might not ever fully know. Because the outcome of that might be beyond our lifetime. And this is how God operates. His ways are higher than our ways. As far as the heavens are from the earth is the comparison we're given from Isaiah. It's like, you're just not going to get it sometimes. That's frustrating. It's deeply frustrating because we want to know. But there's another half of that perspective. The other half of that perspective is sometimes God allows you to go through certain situations so that you can come out on the other side of it better prepared for what's in front of you now. The theme verse for that is, uh, for such a time as this, comes out of Esther 4, grossly taken out of context verse. So I'm going to attempt to not take it out of context now. Esther and the rest of the Jewish um, community were taken out of their land. They were brought into Babylon and eventually taken over by Persia. And so she has actually gotten to a place of high position within the royal household. She's there for such a time as this because the Jews are now under attack again. And she can either use where God has put her for good, or she can hide from it. And what her uncle says to her, his name is Mordecai, he says, whether you do something or not, God will bring deliverance. Because God's purposes are going to come to pass. So whether or not you choose 
to partner with him through it. You've been prepared for such a time as what you're at right now. And right now might be the preparing time. And it might be really difficult to see why. Lord, why am I walking through this right now? Why am I experiencing this right now? It seems so incredibly unfair. I did nothing wrong. And you might feel just silence. The Lord is walking with you, but he's not telling you what's ahead. He didn't tell Joseph what's ahead. And he prepared him through a great many trials to be successful for what's ahead, but he had no idea until the day it happened. We're going to talk about the day it happened today. We're going to talk about how does your character stand in that moment when the opportunity arises. Out of Isaiah 46, it says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, and a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. It's a beautiful blending of God's will and our own. Because God, in everything, gives us choice. Choice of what to do, choice of how to respond, choice of how to act, choice of what to say. He gives us choice. And yet, His purpose will stand. If not with you, then with another. It's a blending of our will with his, understanding that in every situation, every difficulty, every trial of life, we get to choose who we will be on that day. So out of Genesis 41, last week we talked about Joseph, that he was taken out of the dungeon. We talked about interpreting Pharaoh's dream. We talked about his bold move with saying, Pharaoh, I've got an idea on how you should run your country for the next seven years. And then this. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphenath Paneah, and gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. On is a city. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. And I read this, and I considered 
and I know how things are going to go, and I go, wow, that was really nice of Pharaoh to give him a reward for doing something no one else could do. No one else could give this interpretation. He's giving him a reward for it. But beyond that, not just setting him free from his captivity, he's setting him in charge over an entire nation. I don't know if we take the full gravity of that when we read that passage, of what that means, of taking whatever job you've had, was it being in charge of an entire country? Where you are, not only do you have absolute authority, but you have absolute responsibility as well. That now you are expected to forestall this imminent disaster that's going to be coming. And you are in charge of making sure that all of this is taken care of for the next seven years and you get every single person on board in a nation. A nation of businesses, a nation of individuals, a nation of politicians, a nation of other people that don't want you in charge. I don't know how much we've considered that for a moment, that I thought about this. How was Joseph prepared to do this job? It's a big job. And you think about Anybody that has suddenly come into power that was nobody before, are the other people going to be happy about that? Do other people necessarily care about all the good things that Joseph can and will do? Let's just take Potiphar's wife, for example. Joseph was making sure their entire household was blessed. Nothing, times had never been better. Money is rolling in. Things are good. Did she care or did she put her own motives ahead of all of that? And there are plenty of people like that in the world. And unfortunately, a lot of people in power can be like that. So there are going to be some people that don't like Joseph being in charge. This new up-and-comer who hasn't been around the block, hasn't been here before. Why him and not me? Does that sound familiar to anything in Joseph's life? Joseph has been prepared. His father put him, the youngest son, in charge of all of his brothers. He learned firsthand hard experiences of other people that had gone before, put in more time, put in more effort, felt they deserved more than him, and had them hate him for his position. He knows how to handle that well and how to handle that poorly. He has learned things from his life that will help him in this moment. Simply in the idea of political intrigue. Because he's also learned from his past experience in Potiphar's house that people in power will lie just to get back at you. He's learned the need to be cautious. There's a phrase, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You keep your slate clean and you expect that people are going to try to take advantage of you. Don't give them any fuel against you at any point in time. What else did he learn out of Potiphar's house? He learned how to deal with every single social class of Egypt there. Joseph was a slave, and he started at the bottom. He went from being prestige and privilege to the very bottom caste of society. All that's taken away, how will you do, Joseph? And he was set in charge of little, and then a little more, and a little more, and a little more. And he built his reputation. He built up trust. He built up, I can do this. I can trust in the Lord, and I can be faithful, and I can work hard, and I can manage these things. And he would have worked with people from every caste. It's a 
every part of society. From the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. He would have known how to deal with convicts. He would have known how to deal with the state. He would have known how to deal with making production happen. So he knows the other side of the equation that he is now on. Because now he's on the side where he's the state that's coming in and saying, hey, we've got this big issue that we're addressing. I need you all to be on board. Who's okay with 20% taxes? Because for them, food is money. We don't quite live in that same system now, all of us. A lot of us have um, technical, digital jobs. We don't equate things that way. Agrarian societies, food is money. We're going to take away 20% of your money. And we're going to hold it. And then when you need it, I'm going to make you buy it back from me. This is what happens. Joseph, you're in charge. Get everyone on board. It's a big job, and he's been prepared for it. He's been given perspective. He's been given humility. He's been given talents and abilities that were developed through time for such a time as this. The trials, the difficulties, the pains, the sufferings, the injustice of it all. And suddenly, all of it was important for him to know and understand and to have experienced to be successful in this moment. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph was 17 when he was put into captivity. Some simple mathematics, he spent 13 years as a slave and as a prisoner for nothing he ever did. 17 years free, 13 years a slave. Almost half of his life in this situation. Life's not fair. What do you do with what you've been given? How does your character stand in that moment? There's a common phrasing, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. You take what you've got and make the best of it. And Joseph, through this time, is trying to make the best of it in every situation. His character has stood firm before the Lord, and he never blamed the Lord for any of it. The Lord was with him. The Lord has given him favor. He hasn't removed the situation, but he's given him favor. And it's one of those things where it just feels like it's going to go on and on and on. It's never going to end. Imagine 13 years of enslavement. 13 years of being in the pit. You will feel like this is never going to end. To get in a situation where he's imprisoned. There's no light out of this unless somebody helps me. He comes across two people. You're from the royal household. You're going back. You're not. Remember me. There's no way else I'm getting out of this. Such desperation of soul in this moment. How will you respond? Joseph was 30 years old. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. 
And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Just imagine the scope of that wealth. If he's collecting 20% and it's like the sand of the sea that cannot be measured, the other 80% that's out there and how everyone would respond to that. The good times are rolling and they're never gonna end. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asana, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Quick aside, this reference now to Ephraim and Manasseh. And I do refer to them that way on purpose. Manasseh is the firstborn. They will always be referred to as Ephraim and Manasseh. That's going to become because of the blessing that Joseph's father will later on give to them when they're reunited. That they are adopted into the household of Jacob to replace Joseph's tribe. They are the tribe of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. They receive the double portion that the father has a right to give any of the sons that he wishes. And Ephraim will become the opposition to Judah. They're going to be this, um, these opposing sides of God's offer to both to be obedient unto him and to live under his blessing. And how through both there's rises and falls and ultimately both failure. That the nation of Israel at one point will be split into two and you'll have Israel in the north, and you have Judah in the south. And the king over Israel is an Ephraimite, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's a curse word in Israel, in case you don't know. As you read through the rest of Kings, you will read over and over again. And they made them sin like Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And I feel really bad for Nebat. That because of his son, his name will essentially be a curse. He was given this opportunity. David's family is failing. I'm going to give you part of this kingdom. I'm still going to give something because of my servant David. I'm going to still hold that promise to him. His household will always be on the throne. But his family is failing, and I'm not going to let them be under him anymore. That's where you have Judah and Benjamin and Simeon, because they're inside of Judah. And the other ten tribes are in the north. He said, you have the opportunity now to serve me. You have the opportunity to be my anointed one. You have this great privilege I'm going to do for you. What are you going to do for it? And Jeroboam sins, sins, sins. And he drags the whole nation down with him. He said, God will give us opportunities to be prepared, to have the blessing, to walk with him. And what do we do in the moment? The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of, the e of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. 
for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the end of our chapter. A few things that are being accomplished here, a little bit more than meets the eye. There's one that is the obvious result, which we'll talk about sandwiched in the middle of it. But the first one is a fulfillment of prophecy. Fulfillment of prophecy that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. This is Egypt that he's speaking of. This is where they're going. This is how they get there. Is they're going to need to go to Egypt to eat. There will be a reunification with Joseph. They will be brought in. Things will be good for a minute. And then eventually Joseph passes away, the Pharaoh passes away, another Pharaoh arises that knows nothing of Joseph and what he's done, and he fears this vast multitudes of Hebrews in his land that they will side with his enemies, and so he enslaves them all. And for 400 years they sit there in the enslavement in Egypt. And this is how it begins. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Those are the ten plagues of Egypt. When God raises up Moses and says, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go worship me. And the refusal and the rest is now many movies and books that we've seen over the years. Some of them are not real good. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I didn't want to finish the passage just on a judgment of the nation they serve, but I wanted to talk about that just a little bit at the end there. Anyone ever ask the question, why didn't he give the land of Canaan to them right away? Why didn't he call Abram down and say, hey, clean out the land, take over, set this up as a standard for Yahweh. Why didn't that happen immediately? It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, after the call. The sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. It speaks to God's character towards all of humanity. Everyone is given a chance to return, and they're given a long, long long time. If you look at our world right now and you go, Lord, why aren't you smiting more people? Why aren't you bringing down these terrible things that are happening? Why aren't you bringing your judgment and wrath? Why aren't you bringing this revival that I just so deeply want to happen? And God is giving people an opportunity to repent. It's what he does consistently. When we are in the early part of Genesis, did this analogy where when you flip a page, it's 1,500 years of God giving people an opportunity. They go out. I've told you what to do. Are you going to do it? And they go down a bad, dark path. And God continues to do this over and over again, giving time. Will you return? I'm going to send warnings. Will you return? I'm going to send prophets. Will you return? I will save you out of your affliction. Will you return? And time and time again, we go down the same spiral. The sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. I'm going to give them an opportunity, and they're going to fail. How hard would that be? 
knowing you giving, you knowing you're going to give someone a chance. They failed every other time, but you're loving and you're faithful towards them, and you just you. Not only is it a suspecting that they're going to fail again, you know they're going to fail again. How hard that would be sometimes to actually be God, who looks at every single person on this earth as his child. This is my child whom I love, and they're stupid. And we think about that with our own children. They're not adults. They're not grown up. They don't, have the, they don't think like you do. You think, oh, just don't do that. And then they do it. We don't like to think of ourselves as adults as children. And that's what God sees us. You don't think like I do. If you thought like I do, you would never do that. But he wants to give them a chance. So the obvious thing that's happening here is that it's the salvation of the whole world from starvation. God has the entire world in mind, not just his people, not just this group, not just this person. And of Isaiah 45, it talks about how God will often use anybody for his purposes. It's talking about the King Cyrus of Persia. It says, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you though you don't know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout, I, the Lord, have created it. It's that God has the entire world in mind. I'm going to use everybody to bring about this purpose. I want the whole world to be blessed, and I'm going to use my people, and for the sake of my people, I'm going to accomplish this purpose with whoever I have at this moment. And there are moments in history, look back, there aren't really a lot of good options of people to choose from. And so he's going to take what he has. And he's going to use them to accomplish his purpose. And he's going to bring his blessing on earth whether we like it or not. Isn't that such a weird thought? Whether we like it or not, God's blessing's coming. And how often people want to reject God's blessing because your blessing means I'm not God, God. And I'd rather deal with the heartache and the sorrow and the pain and the suffering and the challenge and the difficulties and pretend I'm God of my own life. What a trade. He's wanting to bring about a very essential perspective for his people. Out of this moment, out of what's going to come from their enslavement in Egypt, it's going to become something so critical to understand for all of humanity to understand. There's five different passages that's going to repeat this certain phrase. I'm going to read one of them. Deuteronomy 24. When you reap the harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, 
the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. And there's four other passages that I listed there out of Deuteronomy. They repeat that phrase. You were a slave in the land of Egypt. You will remember this. I am the Lord your God. Everyone matters. Every single human being matters. No matter what they're, where they're from, what they've done, how they act. Every single one matters. And you will Consider them. And I'm going to put you through 400 years of suffering so you will understand that. So the whole world will understand that. That everyone deserves to be considered because they're a human being. So what can we learn? First of all, that God uses all people for his purposes, often with ways and means that we would not desire. It's true then, it will be true when Jesus' time, and it's true now. When Jesus came back to this earth, the apostles wanted him to rise up as a military leader and overthrow Rome. This is how the Messiah is going to do it? I've decided. We're ready, Lord. We got the zealots. Let's go. That is not the way God was going to do it. As opposed, we go back to the time of kings. We go to the time we're reading about right now. All you need to do, Lord, is just get a different leader. That's going to solve this problem. We just need different leadership. That guy's bad. We get a good guy in there. We'll be okay. God's response to that, Jeremiah 43, 2 Kings 17. He's like, no, I'm going to send in Babylon and Assyria, and they're going to take all of you out of there, every last one of you, and you're going to become exiles because there's a systemic issue here. It's not one person to the problem. You're all the problem. You need to be removed. You need to get perspective. All of you have to be in alignment of returning to the Lord. It's not one person's problem. It's not going to be fixed by one leader being changed. It's a heart issue of the entire nation that has to be overturned. And how does God solve that problem? He takes the entire nation and removes them that they may learn. When they come back to the land, there is so much fervent passion for the word of the Lord. Read Nehemiah. Read Ezra. The people are in full commitment. We will never let this happen again. We will be passionate for God. The entire nation that returns, returns wholeheartedly to the Lord. Sometimes there's a systemic issue, and it's got bigger than a way that we want to handle. When you go to the time of Jesus, it's not so simple as just wiping out Rome. That's not the big problem here. You've returned to the Lord, but you've lost all of your heart. There's a systemic issue with my people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They are sad, you see. (laughs) 
Jesus referred to them as whitewashed sepulchers. Good-looking tombs. Look great on the outside. You've got your life all shaped up. You're all bright and shiny now. You're doing all the things. But you have no love. You're full of dead bones inside. The greatest commandment isn't you shall do all the things. The greatest commandment is you shall love. You shall love the Lord your God with everything. And you shall love your neighbor the way you love you. And as we walk through this life, we're going to run through some issues. And those purposes might be clear, and sometimes they may not be. Out of Job 10, we have the cry of a confused and desperate heart. Job had everything, and he was a godly man. He was a good man. He had no fault, and he lost everything. All of his children died. All of his wealth was robbed from him, and his health was stripped from him. It's a desperate cry of a desperate heart that is lost and confused. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands, and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a man, or your years as a man's years, that you seek out my iniquity and search my sin, although you know that I am not guilty, and there is none to deliver out of your hand? Your hands fashioned and made me. And now you have destroyed me altogether. Lord, why have you done this? Lord, why have you allowed this to happen to me? And do you know what God says to Job? Who are you to ask me? Is that the response we want? There's a certain realization that we have to have is that God owes us nothing. There's an immense amount of humility that needs to occur to make that realization. God owes us nothing. God has quite literally given us everything. And we don't get to make demands of God of any sort, even of explanations. And he says, Job, you're not going to understand if I even told you why. And he carries them through this whole account of the entire world and creation and everything. He says, Job, how can you even understand that? And Job at the end says, you're right. I spoke about things I did not understand. And Job was restored. It wasn't immediate. He still had to live the rest of his life. But his health returned. He continued having a family. He rebuilt his business. His life continued on. But the purpose of Job going through that is for everybody here right now. 
to be able to have that understanding that God doesn't owe you an answer, no matter how hard that is. Some things won't be clear, and some things are. Some things you'll get through it, and you go, oh, I see why I needed to walk through that. Because suddenly, I really need that experience right now. And there will be some experiences that we don't know the fullness of it. And the impact might even come long after our lifetime. But something we have to hold in mind with all of this is that God's ultimate purpose in all things that he does is that we should live. Mm -hmm. Ezekiel 18.30, it says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. When we look at this particular account, God brought about one individual through an immense amount of suffering to be capable of saving the whole world from salvation. Two weeks ago, Ty talked about perspective. And he talked about seeing Jesus in the life of Joseph. God made a way with one person through an immense amount of suffering to save the whole world. But do you know what had to happen for that world to be saved? They had to go to where God did the work of salvation. When Jesus came to this world and he endured great suffering that he never deserved and he went to that cross and he shed his life so that the whole world to be saved was the whole world saved. No, you have to go to where the salvation is. And the salvation is in Christ. You don't just get to eat the bountiful feast without going to Jesus. And that's what the whole world needs to understand. They don't, they're not just going to be able to be grafted in because they're related to us. Or because they know us. Or because somehow everything will just work out. They have to know God. They have to come to His salvation where He has made it, and that's in belief in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have to choose God over themselves. And it's an amazing thing that He has done this for us and a constant reminder that God sends to us in the most difficult parts of life, in the most difficult parts of life that you will walk through and your family will walk through and your friends will walk through and this world will walk through. Who will you be in that moment? Will you still choose the light of the Lord? We come to God every day and we thank Him for what He's done and we look for these opportunities to share His light with somebody who needs it. Somebody who needs the bread of life. Amen?